us to, I'm assuming, page 2 in most of your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 2. Our text this morning will be verses 4 through 17. Please hear the Word of God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being or a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. Uh, It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hevelah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and oink stone are, are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Father, as we have read your word, I pray you would add your blessing to it. And I pray that you would use it, uh, that it would accomplish every purpose that you have purposed for it. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Since we have a number of visitors uh, with us this morning, first of all, I'd like to tell you that it is our habit uh, to work our way through uh, entire books of the Bible. So we have just um, a few weeks ago started the book of Genesis. And I would like us, because there's a number of visitors, to bring us to the same starting point by affirming a few truths that are essential to our faith as Christians and are necessary for our understanding of Genesis chapter 2. So the first truth I want to affirm is that we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, the inspired, the authoritative word of the true and living God. Second... We believe that God created the world from nothing and that He is continuing to be active in it. He is not the watchmaker who made the clock, wound it up, and then left it to run by itself. He is present and active in our world and in our lives. Third, we believe that Adam and Eve were the first human beings. They were created directly by God and did not evolve from lower uh, forms of animals. And there are many other truths that we could affirm, but for our purpose, purposes, I'll limit us to these three. So, um, let's look at the text. 
Genesis 1, you'll remember, uh, provided us with a bird's eye view of creation. It was a very orderly uh, account. Chapter 2, however, is more detailed. And it's a detailed view of the sixth day. And it's actually a detailed view of the sixth day inside the Garden of Eden. Chapter 2 complements chapter 1. For instance, chapter 1 tells us that God created man and woman in His own image. Chapter 2 tells us how He did it. Uh, Chapter 2 also, as I said, takes place entirely inside the Garden of Eden. And uh, most of us uh, have known about this uh, since childhood. But I want to make a couple of um, a couple more technical observations about Genesis chapter two before we dive into the heart of the passage. Moses wrote Genesis chapter two specifically to prepare us for Genesis chapter three. You say, "Well, duh, that makes sense." Uh, what I mean by this is Moses emphasized several items in the Garden of Eden to contrast with the reality. that we find in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall. And when I mention the fall, I'm not mentioning that someone tripped. Rather, I am talking about Adam and Eve and their uh, willful uh, sin against God by eating uh, the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, for instance, uh, in Genesis 2, preparing us for the reality of Genesis 3 after the fall. For instance, in verse 9, Moses emphasized that that in the garden, God calls every tree that is pleasant and good, um, pleasant to the sight and good for food, he emphasized it to contrast with the thorns and the thistles uh, that will spring up after the fall of mankind. Also, before the fall, Adam Adam could simply gather the choice fruits from the trees. But after the fall, he has to work the ground. But he has to work the ground that is working against him uh, in order for him to eat and to feed his family. Before the fall, there was no rain. The Bible tells us that there was a mist that came up from the ground. Plus, there were these... um, the swelling rivers that we read about to, to abundantly water the land. And so there was no rain. But then after the fall, uh, the world would eventually be destroyed by a worldwide flood. Before the, before the fall, man was created from dust. After the fall, people would return to the dust when they die. Before the fall, man lived in the presence of the tree of life. After the fall, man was driven from the garden and banished from the tree of life. Before the fall, man lived in a blessed existence. After the fall, frustration, sorrow, and death saturated man's existence. So the purpose of Genesis 2 is to prepare us for the contrast that are coming in Genesis chapter 3. Now, as we dive into the substance of this sermon, I especially want you to notice verses 16 and 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You, you may surely eat of 
every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, in the center of the garden with the command that man was not to eat of its fruit. And as I said, it was not an apple. Uh, And also, people naturally ask why God put it there if He knew that people were going to eat of its fruit. And it's a good question. I'm going to attempt to answer that question for you. Hindsight being 20-20, we know that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was more than just a test for Adam. Because as we continue looking through the Scriptures, what we find out is that this was really a covenant that God had made with Adam. And this was a condition of that covenant. Um, And I'm only mentioning Adam here because Eve had not yet been created. She was created later on day 6. Uh, she was. We're talking about verses 16 and 17 with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She was not created until verses 21 and 22. So anyway, as I was saying, uh, this tree was more than just a test for Adam. It was a covenant between God, Adam, and every human being that would descend from Adam. Hosea calls it a covenant. In Hosea uh, chapter I think 6 verse 7 or 7 verse 6. I forgot to write the, the, the reference in my notes. It says, but, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So we know it was a covenant. Uh, it meant that Adam was the representative head of the entire human race. He, had he obeyed God and refused to eat from the, the forbidden fruit, he would have earned righteousness and life and unbroken communion with God, not only for Himself, but for the entire human race. But eating the forbidden fruit would have earned Him unrighteousness, death, and eternal condemnation for the entire human race. And of course we know that Adam indeed Uh, broke the covenant, he disobeyed God, he ate from the forbidden tree, and we have been crying, and we have been dying ever since. If you're following along in your notes, uh, I'm about halfway through, and I don't know if you knew that there was um, some notes uh, on the back side of the bulletin, but uh, I'm in point two, major point two, sub point B. And you'll see two sub-subpoints under B, and I'm going to switch those two sub-subpoints. Um, is everybody thoroughly confused? <laughs> I was trying to be helpful and, and uh, make it clear, but I think I probably have confused you more. Adam earned for himself and earned for us physical, spiritual, and eternal death. Uh, you don't need to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans uh, 5. I'm simply going to read them. I have them in your notes so that you can look at them later if you would like. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
That's 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one to come. And you say, huh? What does that mean? Well, I'll explain it in a second. I also wanted to read Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now what all this means is that death entered the world by one man because he, he the covenant representative, um, the head of the entire human race, we're talking about Adam, he sinned. And therefore, he broke the covenant. And we, because he was our covenant representative, we all participated uh, in that act of disobedience. Paul's point in Romans 5 is that sin came into the world well before the Ten Commandments. We like to think, well, I'm not a sinner if I haven't broken one of the Ten Commandments. But Paul was saying, the Ten Commandments didn't come for thousands of years. The Ten Commandments came with Moses. But yet people were dying before Moses even came and was born and gave us the Ten Commandments. And... There would be no death if there was no sin. So Paul's point is, sin was in the world before the Ten, Ten Commandments. And so you are a sinner even before you've had the opportunity to break one of the Ten Commandments. Um, you are a sinner um, because of Adam's sin. Paul says this one trespass, this one sin, led to condemnation for all of us. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's, in Adam's sin, we were all condemned. These passages teach us that Adam earned sin, that he earned death, that he earned condemnation for us. We came into this world with all three strikes against us. That's the reason why we read the passages we read in the responsive reading. Uh, I do want you to look at these scriptures, and I will be uh, quick because we've already looked at them. These scriptures in your bulletins that we read for our responsive reading. So if you'll take your bulletins and open to the responsive reading. Like I said, I'm going to work through them really quickly. We've already read Genesis 2.17. I've quoted it several times already. God told Adam on the day that he ate the forbidden fruit that he would surely die. Did Adam die physically that day? No. In fact, he lived many more years than we will live. But he died, certainly. He died spiritually. And because of his spiritual death, we are born spiritually dead. In fact, that's what King David expressed in Psalm 51.5. He says, 
Um, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This means that as we see, this means as we see in the next passage in Romans three ten and eleven, that none of us are righteous, or as it says, there is none righteous, no, not one, none who understands, no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside; together they have become worthless. No one, <coughs> no one does good, not even one. And then if you look at the top of the, the middle column here, this one long extended passage from Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 1, uh, verses 1 through, through 5. Um, Paul uses the language from Genesis 2.17. Uh, God said to Adam, you will surely die uh, if you disobey me. Paul says, you now are dead. And you were dead in your in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul continues to explain what it means to be spiritually dead in the next passage, um, the the passage that the congregate that you you read earlier, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Being spiritually dead means that. We live uh, following the passions of our flesh, basically doing what we want to do without being ruled by God. Or as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, we want to be autonomous. We want to rule ourselves. And Paul says, basically, by nature, we were children of wrath. But in the next passage... Um, in the next passage, God says, or the passage says that God did something to change all that. Follow along as I read. Actually, I've got a better idea. I want you to read along with me because I'm going to read slowly. I'm going to read deliberately. But I want this passage, these words from God Himself, these words of mercy, these words of love, to sink down into the very pores of your body and infest your soul. So if you have it with me, it's the uh, third passage down in the middle column. It starts with, but God. Uh, Read it with me, and we'll read it slowly. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That is good news. We were dead. And God says He loved spiritually dead people. He showed mercy to spiritually dead people. God loved a people who refused to be ruled or or, or guided by Him. God loved a people who did not love Him. It says that God made us alive 
who had been spiritually dead. And how did he do it? It says here in the passage that he did it through Jesus Christ. Well, what did God do to make us spiritually alive? What did God do to reverse the work of Adam? Well, Christ came to do what Adam did not do. He came as the second Adam. In fact, that's what the Bible says. It calls Jesus uh, the second Adam. Listen again to the Romans 5 passage. But instead of listening for what Adam did, listen to what Christ did. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and to life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, there's a coordination between Adam and Christ. In other places in the Scripture, it makes, makes it clear that Christ is the second Adam. I could uh, read those passages, but I think you probably want me to keep moving uh, with the time being what it is. Adam, while Adam was the head of humanity, Christ is the head of the church. Just as Adam's disobedience has far-reaching consequences for all those whom he represented... So Christ's obedience has far-reaching consequences for those whom He represents. Christ came to do what Adam did not do, and He came to undo that which Adam had done. So what did Adam not do? He did not obey God. Christ came here to earth to obey all of God's commandments in all of His thoughts, in all of His words, in all of His actions, in all of His motives. He obeyed God perfectly every second, every moment of His life here on earth. That covenant that God established with, with uh, Adam in Genesis chapter 2, Christ fulfilled that covenant perfectly. Completely. He lived the perfect life that Adam forfeited. But not only that, Christ came to die a death that Adam earned and we were charged with. We were charged with Adam's death. What Christ did was He came and died as a substitute to pay the penalty that we were charged with. Furthermore, Christ came to not only die for Adam's death, and his, his disobedience, He also came to die for all of our sins and all of our acts of disobedience. I want to make three very brief but important applications. First of all, don't miss the glory of Jesus. Christ loved us so much that He came here. Well, first of all, He left heaven and He came here to earth to die for sinners. Not only that, He was able to pay for so many people's multitudes of sin. No mere human being could do that. He could only do it because He was God. Christ was the perfect sacrifice of infinite value. Second application, don't miss the free grace of God. We're talking here about how Christ redeemed us from the curse of Adam's sin and how He redeemed us from the penalty of our own sins. 
But we haven't mentioned what we need to do to assist Him in redeeming us. Well, that's because there's nothing that we can do to assist Christ in redeeming us. Christ did it all. Normally you might hear a preacher at this point in the sermon um, start telling you about what you must do to be saved, how you must walk an aisle, pray a prayer, how you must change your ways, how you must uh, participate in the sacraments, and we could go on and on. That kind of preaching is in error. Christ did it all. There is nothing you can do to assist Christ. Your salvation is full and it is free. It is God's gift. Flee to Him now because He has purchased salvation uh, in His death and in His resurrection. Entrust yourself to Him now because He has done it all. Third and final application. Christ is building a new humanity through His redeemed people. Adam made a big mess of humanity. Christ is coming to change all that. That's why Christ is called the second Adam. So how is He populating this new humanity? Uh, Naturally, you might answer that He's populating it with uh, people from the church. But that's not true. In fact, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We wouldn't be here in church worshiping Jesus uh, had He not purchased us and brought us to Himself. We were all living in rebellion to God. So Jesus is not picking the best and the brightest for His new humanity. In fact, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 says that He's picking the dumbest and the weakest. Uh, He's picking sinners. But then what He's doing is He's making these sinners spiritually alive. What we call regeneration. He's drawing these sinners to Himself. If you have no desire to love Jesus Christ or entrust yourself to Him, then... Unfortunately, you're still dead in your sins. And I would urge you, plead with Him for mercy. Now, if you love Him and trust Him, it's only because He has awakened you from your spiritual death and drawn you to Himself. And He will never leave you or forsake you because He cannot deny the work of His hands. And if you are here this morning, and if you have never entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, but as I've been, but as I've been explaining what Christ has done to reverse the curse, what Christ has done that Adam could not do, what Christ has done that you could never do, and you're starting to think, this is making kind of sense to me for the first time. Um, I do want to entrust myself to Christ. Well, if you have those thoughts, if you have those desires, that's because Christ is working in you. You may not have some emotional experience, but all of a sudden this stuff starts to make sense and you believe it. Well, that's what happens 
when God starts working in a person. That's what happens when God starts awakening a person from their spiritual death. And if God has started working in you, then you know, you can know that He will not refuse you. So entrust yourself to Him now. Let's pray. Father, we worship You for giving us Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who not only was able to reverse what Adam did, but to give us a salvation better than what Adam would have possibly been able to give us. Father, I pray that You would encourage those who trust in You. I pray that You would humble those who are rebelling against You and living in their spiritual death. And Father, I pray that You would... Uh, sweetly and powerfully draw those who for the first time, maybe, are beginning to believe that Christ indeed is the Savior for their sins. I ask in His name. Amen.